Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360. In part two of our podcast on the article, Diagnosis and Management of Growth Hormone Deficiency in Adults, I speak with the authors about the physiology of GHD and the differences between childhood and adult onset GHD. Dr. Julie Silverstein is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Neurological Surgery and Medical Director of the Pituitary Center at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Alexandra Martirosian is a second year fellow in the Endocrinology Department at Washington University in St. Louis. Let's listen in as they answer my questions. What are the mechanisms of action of adult onset GHD and how do the mechanisms differ from childhood onset GHD? Sure. Just kind of like a fundamental difference, I would say, between adult onset and childhood onset is that usually childhood onset, it's, there's more often a, a genetic cause. In adults, it's more often an acquired cause. So at least in the genetics realms, it could be maybe a defect in the, the gene for growth hormone or the growth hormone receptor. And then acquired can happen in adults and children equally. And I would say the most common cause is disorders like pituitary tumors and then their retreatment for those tumors. So whether that's surgery or uh, radiation, and there's a big variety of tumors that can appear in the pituitary. I mean, adenomas are most common, but you can get things like Rathblase plepsis, meningiomas, craniopharyngiomas. There's a pretty big uh, variety there. Um, you can get even metastases to the pituitary. Uh, and then there's a lot of traumatic brain injury can cause it. And then there can be infiltrative diseases like sarcoidosis or amyloidosis. Um, you can get like autoimmune inflammation of the pituitary gland. You can get infections of the central nervous system, such as like tuberculosis or syphilis. And then there can even be like infarction or uh, hemorrhage in the pituitary gland. Um, one thing we always have to keep an eye on is called pituitary apoplexy, which is essentially when there's either a hemorrhage or cut off in blood supply to the pituitary gland. This is typically seen in cases where there's enlargement of the pituitary gland, like a pituitary macroadenoma. Usually patients will present with severe headaches, um, maybe just like cranial nerve palsies. Um, and it can be a surgical emergency if it especially leads to drops in like cortisol or thyroid levels, which are essential for life. Sometimes these patients need to be seen by a neurosurgeon very quickly. And then when that scenario occurs in pregnancy, it's called Chihan syndrome. Sometimes going back in the pediatric realm, there can be just failure of the central nervous structures to develop properly. And that can lead to things like septo-optic dysplasia, for example. And I think the only thing I'd add is that people are becoming increasingly aware um, that TBI, traumatic brain injury, and subarachnoid hemorrhage are clinical conditions that can cause growth hormone deficiency. Making the diagnosis of GHD is generally easier in children because like you said, the outcome of short stature is readily apparent and because the symptoms are generally nonspecific for adult onset GHD. Therefore, a higher index of suspicion is required as we talked about before. So what risk factors should raise suspicion for adult onset GHD? big thing is just clinical history. So like if they have that history of like a brain tumor, pituitary tumor, uh, or treatments, or surgery, uh, or uh, radiation, you know, pituitary gland or nearby structures, that's a big one. 
again, traumatic brain injury, or if, if they had like a congenital defect leading to growth hormone deficiency in childhood, those are all things to, to be race suspicion. The other thing is that if you have a patient with you know, pituitary disease or history of surgery, and they have other hormone deficiencies like central secondary hypothyroidism, central or secondary hypogonadism or secondary or central adrenal insufficiency, especially if they have all three of those, then the likelihood that they have growth hormone deficiency is very, very high. So that's the other thing to keep in mind. Okay. So then let's talk a little bit more about diagnostic testing for GHD in adults. What tests are currently available to aid in the diagnosis? Well, and I guess I'll give a little bit of background about how we go about testing growth hormone in, in the first place. In general, just checking a random growth hormone level by itself is not helpful because there's just a lot of variables that can affect them. Um, it can include just whether you ate something that can suppress them, the time of day, or if you're like stressed, um, and then even like age, all of those things can affect growth hormone levels. And it also just has a very short half-life in blood. I mean, it's just about like 20 to 30 minutes. But typically like a screening, sometimes we'll start with an IGF-1 level because that's a downstream marker of growth hormone production. If that's abnormally low, then you in the history will decide whether you do stimulation testing. So like Dr. Silverstein mentioned, if you have a patient who already has three or more pituitary hormone deficiencies, like I said, secondary hypothyroidism, secondary adrenal deficiency, and then maybe like secondary hypogonadism, your pretest probability of having growth hormone deficiency is very high. So if you have three hormone deficiencies in a low IGF-1 level, less than um, two standard deviations, or it's often reported as a D-score, then your diagnosis is made, you can just empirically treat. If they have two or less hormone deficiencies in history of pituitary disease, in a low IGF-1 level, then you could proceed with stimulation testing. And as far as the stimulation tests go, uh, there are three that we use commonly in the United States. There's a um, there's insulin tolerance test, the glucagon stimulation test, and then a massimorellin test. The, the insulin tolerance test, it was kind of the, one of the earlier ones. And it, for a long time, it had been a, considered a gold standard. And the way it's done is the patient does fast for eight hours, and then they're given a dose of insulin the goal is to get them really hypoglycemic, like their blood sugar less than 40. And then growth hormone levels are drawn at like 20, 30, 40, and 60 minutes. And then if their growth hormone levels less than five micrograms per liter, then that's a diagnosis. Um, the big drawback with this one is that it can be very unpleasant. I mean, having a critically low blood sugar is not a fun experience for patients and it can be dangerous. Actually, this test is contraindicated in people with history of seizure disorder, uh, severe cardiovascular disease, age over than 65 or pregnancy. Another one that's a little bit better tolerated is the glucagon stimulation test. And this one, it's, it's similar. So you start fasting and then they're given a shot of glucagon and then their growth hormone levels are measured over every 30 minutes, over four hours. The cutoff in this test, it's less than three micrograms per deciliter if they're BMI in, in lean people, like a BMI less than 25. Um, but because obesity can blunt the production of growth hormone, that cutoff is lower to one microgram per deciliter if your BMI is over 25. Um, common symptoms are like GI things like nausea, vomiting, um, or sometimes you're gonna have like drops in your blood sugars hours after the test. Um, they're probably the biggest frustration is it's long, it's four hours. So it's gonna be a big time commitment. One of the newer tests on the market now, the Massimorellin test, 
It's relatively new. I think it's been on the market for about three or four years now. So this one is it's oral. It's like they take an oral solution. And so the patient comes in fasting, they take this oral solution of the mesmerillin and then growth hormone levels are measured every 15 minutes for an hour and a half. And the cutoff for this test, it's a growth hormone level less than 2.8 micrograms per deciliter. Although recent studies oppose maybe rates in that cutoff to 5.1, but at least for now, the FDA cutoff is 2.8. Side effects, I mean, really, it's the most common symptom is just impaired taste. Otherwise, there's just cautions for QTC prolongation. I'd say the biggest barrier, though, inhibiting its widespread use is just cost. It's just because it's new, so it's really expensive. And so it's a big thing there. But hopefully in time, that may be a more um, readily used test. I just want to add that I think we rarely do the insulin tolerance test anymore because we have the glucagon test because of the risks. Glucagon is widely available, and I think that's what's most commonly used in the U.S. The massamorellin is great because it's an oral test and doesn't take as long, but cost is the main issue. And I think it's difficult to get these stimulation tests done outside of centers, you know, like pituitary centers or academic institutions. Measure IGF-1 levels, of course, but it's important to realize that patients with growth hormone deficiency can have normal IGF-1 levels. So that doesn't always rule it out. So if you have a high index of suspicion and you have someone who's, for example, has other hormone deficiencies, it, it's reasonable to go ahead with the stimulation tests, such as the glucagon or the massamorellin. The other thing that's important to remember when doing the diagnostic tests is that overweight individuals can have a blunted uh, growth hormone response. So that's why you'll see now there is a different cutoff recommended for the glucagon stimulation test based on your weight. The cutoff for the glucagon stimulation test in someone who's a BMI of less than 25 is less than three. But if your BMI is higher than that, it's really less than one. The massamorellin test has not been really studied yet in obese individuals. So we don't have a difference of the cutoffs in that population. So I appreciate your time. Thank you again so much for answering my question. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having okay. us.